Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. If you'll remain standing and take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to John, or excuse me, James chapter 5. We were in John last week. James chapter 5, as we continue through this little epistle, we're getting close to the end. We're in chapter 5 again this morning, maybe a couple of more uh, messages and James will be completed and then Lord willing, uh, we will begin in the book of Ephesians. So looking forward to that. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11 as uh, our text this morning, if you'll follow along as I read, beginning now in James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, for five weeks, uh, we looked at a section in James, which began in chapter 4, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 6. And, and in this section, James has been showing us how worldly wisdom or worldliness manifests itself in the lives of believers. In the first 10 verses of chapter 4, we saw that it manifests itself in the the, the sinful passion and desire for pleasure and personal gratification. In verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, we saw that it manifests itself in speaking evil against and judging a brother or sister in Christ. In verses 13 to 17 in chapter 4, we saw that it manifests itself in self-confident, boastful, arrogant disregard in our planning. And then in the first six verses of chapter 5, we saw that it manifests itself in an arrogant disregard of God when it comes to our resources, that is, in a wrong view and use of our wealth. And you'll remember that in that passage, James was speaking to those in the church, specifically the rich, believers and unbelievers, and what he had to say to them was nothing but a scathing condemnation of unbelievers and a blunt, severe warning to believers. 
And in no uncertain terms, James denounced the wealthy landowners who foolishly hoarded their wealth and abused the power of their wealth to oppress the poor by defrauding their laborers of their wages, mistreating them, using the courts against them, and resorting even to the use of violence. And James warned them of the terrifying fact that the cries of the laborers had reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The God of the universe who would act in judgment. But as we come to our text this morning, the the storm of indignation is past. And there's a very noticeable change in, in James' tone as he changes his focus from the oppressors to the oppressed. From condemning the unbelieving, abusive rich to comforting the believing, abused poor. I mean, the theme of this section is is very easy to recognize. It's being patient in suffering. And here we see James giving loving pastoral instruction to the poor believers who were suffering at the hands of the unbelieving rich. He's telling them how they should behave under pressure. And he's encouraging them to look for the day of deliverance that will one day be theirs. The word therefore in in verse 7, ties what James says directly to the preceding verses and what he said about the poor laborers who were being mistreated. But what James has to say here would apply to all those in the churches he was writing to, and it applies to all believers in every age. And I say that because every Christian will experience trials and suffering. And this is how we're to respond to suffering. And often when a, when a believer is, is suffering, he or she can become disheartened and, and discouraged. And, and, you know, you begin to wonder, well, why in the world is this happening to me? I, I just want it to end. And sometimes we may be tempted to take matters into our own hands to, to make it end. Or to somehow get even. Well, James wrote to Christians under such pressure. But what he says to them in our text is intended to help them to have the right perspective. They were to be patient in their suffering. And they were to fix their hope on the Lord's return, knowing that one day he's going to make all things right. And so following his fiery indignation and denunciation of the rich oppressors, James now turns to counsel and encourage his afflicted brothers and sisters in Christ. And this section divides... Uh, really into two parts. First, in verses 7 to 9, we see the instruction James gives. And then in verses 10 and 11, we see the godly examples that James offers. So let's look now at the instructions he gives in verses 7 to 9. Notice verse 7, where James writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it, receive, until it receives the early and the late rains. And so as I just mentioned, therefore indicates this section is the response of faith to the wickedness of the rich landowners in the preceding section. And James says, be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Actually, it could be translated brothers and sisters. James' loving pastoral heart is seen in the way that he addresses his readers as 
brothers. And he does so three times in these five verses. And it, it's an expression of his tenderness and, and love and his affection for them. It's a reminder to them that he sees them as fellow members of the family of God and that he understands their afflictions and he wants to stand with them. He, he wants to comfort them, encourage them. He feels their suffering and pain as if it were his own. And we can stop right there because isn't this a challenge to our own hearts? I mean, do we identify with the suffering and, and pain of others? Do we identify with the oppression and persecution that Christians today and other parts of the world are experiencing? As one man noted, if we are part of one body, surely we should feel the pain when Christians suffer. We should identify with the hurt inflicted by every blow struck at the body of Christ, whether it be by a communist regime, a religious edict, or a critic's or slanderer's tongue. And that's right. But sadly, more often than not, if it's something that doesn't directly affect us, we're, we're indifferent. We don't really get too worked up about it. On the other hand, when it is something that directly affects us, well, that's an entirely different story, isn't it? James felt their suffering and pain as if it were his own. And what did he instruct his suffering brothers and sisters to do? He said, be patient. Be patient. Back in chapter 1, you'll remember James instructed them to count it all joy when they encountered various trials, knowing that the testing of their faith produced steadfastness. And you could say in one sense, James is picking up that same theme here. He says, be patient, brothers. In the midst of your suffering and persecution, be patient. And this word patient literally means long-tempered. And it's the opposite of short-tempered. You know, a, a, a patient person has a slow fuse. And it, it refers to patiently enduring difficult people. I mean, it's not a passive resignation to one's fate, but rather it's an attitude of self-restraint which keeps a person from retaliating in the face of provocation. And patience is a quality of God himself. I mean, God displays his patience by being slow to anger when man continues in sin, even after numerous admonitions. The psalmist said in Psalm 86, 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I mean, being slow to anger, being patient is a divine attribute which we are all eternally grateful for. Because if God were not patient, he would have wiped out every sinner off the face of the earth centuries ago. And God calls us, in essence, to imitate him and, and to exercise spirit-enabled patience in the face of provocation and unjust treatment. And we ought to reflect this divine virtue in our day-to-day -day lives. I mean, in Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 15, 18, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. 
Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. And the Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3 that we as believers are to clothe ourselves in patience. One man said the great obligation which rests on the Christian is just this. He must be as patient with his fellow men as God has been with him. And James knew the poor believers that he was addressing were unable to defend themselves against their rich oppressors. But even if they were able to do so, he's telling them they should not take matters into their own hands because God has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so James instructs them instead to be patient. And I'd like to see a show of hands uh, how many of you here today are by nature patient? I hope no one raises their hand. I mean, is there anyone who finds patience uh, as natural as breathing? I mean, who instinctively responds to irritating people and aggravating circumstances, trials, testings, and sufferings with complete patience? Well, none of us. Because no one comes by patience naturally. It's not something that we're born with. Rather, it's a work of God's grace in the human heart, a, a fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But even then, we have to constantly fight being impatient, don't we? Well, why do we get impatient? A multitude of reasons. But let me, let me name just two. I mean, we get impatient because we're selfish and entitled. You know, we believe it's our right to have everything happen when we want it to happen and exactly the way we believe that it should happen. We also get impatient because we fail to truly believe in and trust the sovereignty of God. I mean, we say that we believe, Romans 8, 28, we say that we believe God causes all things to work together for our good and for His glory. We say that we believe everything, even suffering, disappointment, tragedy, delays, and interference from others ultimately are under God's sovereign control and, and that He knows what He's doing. But sometimes the simple fact is that what we say we believe doesn't change the way we behave. And so we're very often impatient. Because we're selfish and entitled and we believe we deserve better and then just for a whole multitude of other reasons. And yet James instructs us here along with his readers who were in far worse circumstances than any of us have ever experienced to be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Well, for how long? How long, James? And how long did he tell uh, his readers who were suffering severe oppression and persecution to be patient? Well, look at the verse. Until the coming of the Lord. And the word until is an expression of time and, and means something will continue to happen up to a point and, and then it will not happen because it's terminated by some other event or occurrence. The word until in this context is a very encouraging word. It's a word of hope because it means that an end to the oppression will come. 
It'll come when Christ returns at His second coming. And James uses this truth as an incentive to encourage them to be patient in suffering as they wait for the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. There are three main Greek words used in the Bible to describe the second coming of Christ. The Greek word translated here as coming was used for the arrival of an emperor, a king, or a dignitary. It speaks of authority and power. It was the word used by Jesus when he spoke of the coming of the Son of Man. It was the word Paul used when he spoke of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was the word John used when he said that we should live in such a way that when Christ returned to the earth, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The early Christians consistently used this word to refer to the coming of Jesus at the end of history to judge the wicked and to deliver the saints. And the main thrust of this word is to indicate a a person's physical presence. And this makes it easy to see why James uses the word here. And these persecuted Christians were no doubt comforted by the spiritual presence of Christ, but they longed for the promise of His coming. And, and in the midst of their, all their anguish and suffering, James assures them that, that Christ will come. There's an end point. I mean, there's a time when, when patience will no longer be needed. The Lord's coming, and at that time He's going to make everything right. And James wanted these poor, suffering believers to look beyond their more than difficult temporal circumstances to the coming of the Lord. Because what we're looking for will, or at least should, impact how we live. I mean, Christ's return is especially comforting to those undergoing trials and persecution. I mean, Paul wrote to the church in Rome, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Peter encouraged suffering believers to remember our Lord's return. And he said, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation or the coming of Jesus Christ. You see, the imminent and certain return of the Lord Jesus has been the hope of every generation of believers since the first century. As one man said, the early church thought more about the second coming of Jesus than about death or about heaven. He said they were watching not for the undertaker, but for the upper taker. So let me ask you a question. Do you think much or do you think often about the Lord's return? You know, when things are difficult and people are hurting, they often express their hope for Christ's return. You know, man, I wish the Lord would come back today. But they don't do that so much when things are going well. And for us in in America, the church in America, things have been going well for such a long time that we've grown so uh, used to the the comforts and pleasures of this life that we've grown to love our life in this world more than we love the prospect 
of, of the coming world and being with Christ. And so you don't hear the second coming of Christ talked about much among Christians. You don't hear it preached much in pulpits. So when was the last time you meditated upon the truth of the Lord's return? You know, one man I read said that uh, many years ago he heard a true story about the shepherd's home for children with developmental disabilities. And in this home, they taught that Jesus would save them and, and one day heal, heal them of all their disabilities. And the director said that his biggest problem was dirty windows. He said, because the disabled children would press their hands, noses, and lips against the windows, always looking to see if today might be the day that Jesus would return for them and take them home where they will be healed of all their disabilities. I mean, talk about having the right priorities. Would to God that we had the heart attitude of these precious little children. You know, Paul said in Titus 2.13, we're to be continually looking with, with great anticipation, with expectation for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the Christian hope is, is the coming of Christ when sin and evil will be judged, all the wrongs suffered will be made right, and then we will be with Christ for all eternity. That's the Christian's great hope. And so James instructs his suffering readers to be patient in suffering until the coming of the Lord. But, you know, waiting for God to act is, is, a, is a long process. And so James gives his readers an example of patience from everyday life, the farmer. The farmer who must wait for his precious crop. Look back at verse 7. James says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it? Till it receives the early and the late rains. The word waits is in the present tense, picturing the farmer continually waiting expectantly for his harvest, even as these believers were being encouraged to, to wait for the Lord's return. Now, with regard to the farmer in ancient Israel, the, the, the land was not watered by irrigation, but rather by rain. And this meant the farmer had to work at his farming when there was not even a hint of rain on the horizon. He had to cultivate his field to prepare it for his crops. He had to prepare the seed bed. He had to plant the seed. And all of this had to be done before any rains had come. And so the farmer did his work trusting in God to bless his efforts, but not seeing the rain while he worked. And while he was waiting on, on the crop, the farmer didn't just sit around doing nothing, but, but rather he worked hard in weeding and, and hoeing and, and fertilizing and doing whatever he could to bring, crops to their, bring the crops to full fruition. And then having done what he could, he waited patiently. He waited patiently for the rains God had promised. He hoped and prayed for the early rains to cause the seed to sprout and then for the late rains which were essential for the maturing of the crop for the precious fruit of the earth as James calls it. And the crop is, is precious because the farmer has labored long and hard for it and he and his family literally depended upon it for life itself. 
And no doubt the farmer's faith was tested if the rains didn't come as quickly as he would have liked. But he continued working and waiting, working and waiting, knowing that producing a crop was a long process and he had to patiently wait for the rains that God had promised. I mean, farming in Israel required working and waiting patiently on God so that the farmer could experience the blessing of the harvest. And it was then at the harvest that his patience was rewarded. The the displaced Jewish believers that James was writing to, I mean, obviously were not farming in the land of Israel. But he exhorts them to practice the same kind of patient waiting in their suffering until the coming of the Lord to judge their enemies and to deliver them. And it was then that their patience would be rewarded. And unlike the farmers who had to work and wait with absolutely no guarantee that the crop would come to full harvest, as believers, you and I, I mean, we, we, have, the, we have the guarantee. We have the guarantee of Christ's return. And we should count that as well worth the wait, well worth well worth the suffering, no matter how severe the trials and difficulties may be. And just as the farmer could do nothing to force God's hand in sending the rain or speeding up the process of growth, we cannot compel Jesus to return according to any timetable other than God's. But in the meantime, we're to be busy, always abounding in the work of the Lord, doing all we can to bring about God's purposes in and for our world. James understands that patience won't come easily to his troubled readers. So what does he do? Well, he reiterates his call for patience in imitation of the farmer, and then he adds to it an exhortation. Look at verse 8. He says, you also... Be patient. In other words, imitate the patient farmer. And there's nothing the farmer can do to make the crop or rain come faster. And the farmer is willing to wait because the anticipated crop is very precious. And so there's a purpose in the wait. God is working the whole time. And so he's, he's in essence saying, rejoice in the wait. Rejoice in the wait. For as Paul said, we can be sure of this, that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So like the farmer, James says, you also be patient. And then he says, notice verse 8, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The Greek word translated here as establish, it means to strengthen. To make fast or to make firm. Literally, it's make firm your hearts. And this is a word that speaks of strengthening and supporting something so that it will stand firm and immovable. It speaks of standing firmly in the faith, not giving way to doubt. It's, It's an attitude of commitment to stay the course no matter how severe the trial. And in Luke chapter 9, this term is used to describe Jesus' resolute determination to go to Jerusalem. And you know the story. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen in Jerusalem. Betrayal, desertion, trials, blood, sweat, tears, torture, and an agonizing death. But he also knew something else. He knew that beyond 
All of these was the resurrection, the ascension, and eternal glory at the right hand of the Father. And so he resolutely, he, he set his, fla- his face like flint. He resolved uh, to set out for Jerusalem, refusing to yield to the pressure all around him. You see, the Bible does not speak of patience as waiting for something to happen, but rather as resolute endurance why things are happening. And pressing on regardless of what may happen. And so instead of feeling distressed and shaken up by the oppression and persecution they were experiencing. These believers were to strengthen their hearts. That is they were to develop an inner sense of stability. One man paraphrased it. Put iron in your hearts. Another man uh, says James is calling upon them to be stout hearted. And in Scripture, this inner strengthening, this strengthening of the heart is often spoken of as the work of God in the lives of believers. 1 Thessalonians 3.13, Paul, speaking of God, said that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of His saints. Peter in 1 Peter 5.10 said, And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But here James exhorts his readers themselves to do this. In other words, it's their personal responsibility to develop an attitude of courage and firmness in facing their circumstances. I mean, James is, is in essence telling them that by the grace and strength that God supplies, they were, to sink the, they were to seek to strengthen their hearts, their trust in God, and their relationship with Him. Someone says, well, that's all fine and good, but how do you do that? Well, through the means that God has given us. And what would that be? Well, through prayer, through gathering for corporate worship, and through the Word of God, reading it, Hearing it preached, studying it, meditating on it, hiding it in our hearts, applying it, living it out, sharing it with others. Another way they would be able to strengthen their hearts was by raising their eyes toward heaven, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and and then having a settled conviction that yes, He is coming again. I mean, instead of being like the rich people of verse 5 who had fattened their hearts in a day of slaughter, they were to allow the certainty of Christ's return to strengthen their hearts. So looking back at verse 8, James says, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Or as some translations have it, the coming of the Lord is near. In verse 7, James instructed believers to be patient in view of the fact of the Lord's coming, and now he exhorts them to be patient and to strengthen their hearts on the basis of the nearness of the Lord's coming. And the word translated, the Greek word translated here is at hand, means to approach. It means to be moving toward and, and not be far. And this word is used some 41 times in the New Testament. And one of the more telling uses is in Mark chapter 11, verse 1, where we read, And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. 
And the point is, they were close. They were approaching. They were close, but they were not, yet, not there yet. But they were so close that Jesus sent two of his disciples, disciples on ahead to get things ready. Other uses in places like Matthew 21 and, and Luke 15 confirm that it means to be near, very near, but not yet arrived, but close, close enough for things to start happening. And the tense of the word implies that the coming of the Lord is already near because it has, over time, drawn near. So it's getting close. It's drawing near. It's not that far away. But it's not here yet. I mean, James expected the Lord's coming at any time. And he says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. And some of James' readers, those who suffered the most, may have wondered, well, uh, is there ever going to be an end to the persecution and oppression? And James' answer to their unasked question was to point out that the return was not only getting closer all the time, but could actually be, distri- be described as being at hand. It's, it's near. In other words, the day is virtually upon them. The finish line is just ahead. The the important point is not to give up now and and lose all that they had already suffered for. And no doubt this reminder would have been a great comfort to them. I mean, they didn't know exactly when Christ would return. No one does. But they could be sure that each day brought it closer and closer and closer. And this meant that the time of their suffering was getting shorter, not longer. It was moving towards an end. The day of their release was getting nearer. And and even the worst of their suffering should be seen in in the light of the glory that was to come. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, the return of Christ is, from the time of the early church to our own day, near or imminent. It was as true in James' day as it is in ours. And we need to be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And of course, there there have always been scoffers. I mean, they were around since the time of James, all the way to today, and who suggests that the New Testament writers were absolutely wrong when they said that the Lord's coming was at hand. But of course, that foolish argument was answered in James' day by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 9. And there Peter said that God's scale of time is not the same as ours. Because for God, a thousand years are like a day. And if the Lord delays, from our perspective, He delays to grant sinners more time to repent. I mean, the apostles knew that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and and none of them predicted Jesus would return in their lifetime. But they were sure that Christ's return was imminent. That it could happen at any time. But the fact is, this nearness is in God's time in light of eternity. And so when we hear that the Lord's coming is near, it means that as far as we know, it could happen any day. And so from our earthbound perspective, we're to strengthen our hearts, we're to keep hoping when the delay seems endless, and we're to keep trusting when God's timing seems questionable, and then we need to keep working for righteousness 
even when the results seem meager. But loved ones, the point is simply that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is at hand. It's near. It's it's just around the corner. For now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. I mean, we're much nearer his return than the apostles were. We're much nearer than the apostle John who ended scripture with Jesus saying, surely I am coming soon. I mean, he could literally come today. And every generation of Christians has been called to live expectantly, to live with the awareness that the Lord's coming could occur at any time. And we need to let that awareness, that realization, shape our lives, our decisions, and our values. James believed that Jesus could return in his lifetime. And loved ones, you and I ought to live with that same conviction. And Jesus may come back today, I mean, at any time his return is at hand, it's near. That means that every day could be the very last day. And we need to live in light of that. And we need to be patient in trials and suffering, stand firm and and stay the course. And while the hope of the second coming provides comfort and strength in trials, it's also sobering. And I say that because when Christ returns, he will return to judge the living and the dead. And it's with that in mind that James now instructs his readers not to grumble. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And you read that and you think, well, what's this all about? I mean, it's one thing to get along with other believers when things are going well. But it's quite another when we're all under stress. And James was writing to people who were experiencing such intense suffering that they were easily at each other's throats. You see, James understood that when we experience times or seasons of prolonged pressure and difficulty, There is always the danger of losing patience and becoming frustrated and and irritable with those around us, finding fault with them, lashing out at them, you know, taking our frustrations out on them. Of course, I've never done that, but I heard that this happens. (laughs) We've all done it. And it always seems that we do this to those who are closest to us, doesn't it? You know, those in our family and and those in our church. And here James is specifically speaking of other believers. And so as James does here with his readers, we also must be reminded not to grumble or complain against one another due to our unpleasant or difficult circumstances. The word translated here is grumble. It can also be translated complain or groan. It describes an inner feeling of dissatisfaction, resentment, bitterness that manifests itself in our relationships as grumbling or complaining against others, even when our problems are not their fault. But James is not only concerned with what comes out of our mouths, but also with the attitude of our hearts. 
He is also concerned about the unexpressed feelings of bitterness and or resentment that may just express themselves in, in, a, in a groan or a sigh. You know, in other words, you might be able to restrain yourself from saying something demeaning or, or cutting or exploding in anger. But instead, you roll your eyes, shake your head in, in mockery and ridicule, you know, sneering. And your body language clearly communicates your disdain or your disapproval of the other person. And James says, don't do that. Don't say it and don't express it in your body language. He says, don't do it. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Now, he's already addressed the issue of speaking evil against one another in chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. And grumbling is virtually the same thing. Not only is, is doing so an act of arrogance, of playing God, it's a sin against brotherly love and Christian unity. And we know from Israel's grumbling against Moses that their grumbling against God's leadership was really grumbling against God. And it's hard to eagerly await the return of the same God you're grumbling against. So James instructs them not to grumble against one another. Why? Look back at verse 9. So that you may not be judged. See, Christians often act as though judgment is a far-off, distant future possibility for someone else. James tells us, however, that Christ's return is at hand. He's at the door. So we ought to behave as people ready for a judgment that has already begun in this life and will culminate quickly at his return. Because not only is the coming of Christ at hand, so is the judgment of God. The Son of God, the judge of the world, is at the door and he's ready to throw it wide open and then to take his place on his judgment seat. And James is just saying, look, the judge is coming sooner than you think. Now, we might have expected James to say that to the ungodly, but why, why to believers? Why when, when writing to his suffering, oppressed Christian brothers? Because the fact of the matter is, we will all stand before Christ as judge. As Paul clearly stated in 2 Corinthians 5.10, of believers, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or or evil. So we as Christians will also stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne. That's for unbelievers. But we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And when Christians stand before the judgment seat of Christ, this is not an issue of their salvation. Their salvation will not come into question because that matter has already been settled. But this is the issue of our rewards. This is the issue of rewards. And our lives will come under the intense light of Christ's scrutiny. And it will be shown for what it is because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, the day will disclose it. You know, Paul said, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, 
he will receive a reward. And so the fire will test the quality of each man's work. And there's no escaping the fact that when James speaks of the judge here, he's addressing Christians in the context of their behavior. And so we need to understand what this means. As believers, we're going to be judged according to our works as Christians. And our reward or our lack of reward will be in direct relationship to the things that we have thought, said, and done while here on earth. You know, our prayer lives, our stewardship of our time, our use of our money, our behavior within the church, our domestic lives, our business ethics, all of it will be revealed. And if we've been grumbling and complaining victimizers of the body of Christ, our works will be burned up and we'll suffer loss. Though, as Paul says, we ourselves will be saved, but only as through fire. I mean, what a challenge this is. And the closeness of Christ's return demands that we're prepared. As Peter said, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So we need to ask ourselves, you know, am I ready? I mean, are you ready to stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Am I ready? Are you ready? We need to purify ourselves. Again, as Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hasting the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. How are we going to live? How are we supposed to live? In godliness and holiness. We're to live with a great sense of expectancy, knowing that the Lord could return at any moment. As Paul wrote to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the certainty of the second coming of Christ in judgment should have a profound impact on every single part of our lives on a daily basis because every day could be the last day. That is why Martin Luther once said, I preach as though Christ died yesterday, rose from the dead today, and was coming back tomorrow. I mean, how different our lives and our marriages and our churches would be if we lived, we lived them in that spirit. If the believers James was addressing were going to endure their sufferings, they were going to do so together. And as one man said, trials are better endured with the encouragement of community rather than in solitude. 
And since these suffering believers already had to endure the attacks of of the wicked wealthy, the last thing they needed was to attack one another. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And after his instruction to be patient in suffering and not to grumble in light of Christ's return in verses 7 to 9, now in verses 10 and 11, James gives two godly examples of patient endurance. Old Testament examples of people who had to both suffer and wait patiently. And Pastor James once again addresses his readers by tenderly calling them brothers or brothers and sisters. And he exhorts them, first of all, to follow the godly example of the prophets. Look at verse 10. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And James urges his readers to take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of patience in the face of suffering. And this word example, it stems from a word that means to show. And it represents a pattern or model which is intended for imitation. And so this example that James gives is not meant merely for intellectual or theological discussion and thinking. Rather, it is to be the model for the lives of all of his readers. I mean, the prophets are well known for suffering wrong when they had done no wrong. I mean, they were harshly treated for faithfully speaking in the name of the Lord, that is, declaring the word of God, which they did. They spoke out boldly against evil and social injustice, as James did in the first six verses of chapter 5, even when the perpetrator was the king. And sometimes when that evil was directed at themselves, but they always stopped short of violence or or inciting revolution. And even as the prophets suffered, they still sought the glory of God in, in all that they said and did. I mean, they were God's faithful spokesmen. Yet their ministry was carried out in the context of severe suffering. And James doesn't tell us what specific prophets he has in mind. But I would invite you to to consider the persecution and and suffering the prophets experience. And for over 40 years, Moses had to endure a complaining and grumbling people. Think of the persecution Elijah endured from King Ahab. Think of the hardship of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who suffered so much at the hands of both pagan kings and especially from his own people who cast him into an empty cistern and left him there in the muck and the mud to die. Think of Daniel, who endured false accusations and mistreatment at the hands of jealous men and was cast into a lion's den. And then think of Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, Jehoiada, who sealed his testimony with his blood as he was put to death in the temple. And according to tradition, reflected in Hebrews chapter 11, the prophet Isaiah died a martyr by being sawn in two. Imagine that. I mean, how these men suffered. All of them and and numerous others suffered because they spoke in the name of the Lord. 
Now, the persecution of the prophets was a fact of history, so much so that when he was being martyred, Stephen cried out, Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And if you were a prophet, you were persecuted. There are frequent references to the sufferings of the prophets in the New Testament. And yet here we have James exhorting his readers to follow their example. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, there is a spine-chilling list of the ways God's messengers had been persecuted by torture, flogging, chains, imprisonment, stoning, banishment from society. And even those chosen by God for positions of special honor and service were not exempt from suffering. In fact, just the opposite. They had been singled out for the worst sufferings. And yet, what is our assessment of them now? I mean, do we think that that they're to be pitied? Well, not at all. Look what James says in the first part of verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. I mean, the Jews looked upon these men as blessed, as as heroes, and, and rightly so. I mean, James is saying something like this. Look, you honor the prophets, you regard them as heroes precisely because they're an example of patient endurance in the midst of suffering and adversity. And you should imitate them. You should imitate them by patient endurance in your own trials and suffering. That's what he's saying. And of course, we're more willing, (laughs) we're more than willing to call others blessed for enduring suffering. But we have no real interest in undergoing it ourselves, do we? But they're blessed. But James is encouraging his readers and us to suffer patiently as we wait for the Lord's return and his vindication. The patience and suffering those faithful prophets demonstrated should provide encouragement for believers to run the Christian race with patience and endurance, no matter how severe the persecution. You know, let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us. As a second example, James calls our attention to Job. Look at verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Of course, Job is an incredible example of steadfastness or endurance. He wasn't always perfectly patient. I mean, his responses to his affliction were not always what they should have been, but Job never stopped trusting in God. Never. Job remained steadfast. Job endured unimaginable, unexplained suffering. I mean, the fiercest attacks of Satan, the loss of all of his children, all of his wealth, his health, his reputation, and worst of all, his sense of God's presence. And yet he never turned away from God. He never turned away from God. In Job 1, 22, we read, In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. 
And Job's statement in chapter 13, verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him, exemplifies his patient endurance, his steadfastness in the midst of severe trials and suffering. And then James says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. And here he seems to be calling our attention to the outcome of Job's suffering. First, God vindicated Job as a righteous man, and then he rebuked Job's friends. Can't even really call them friends, but he rebuked Job's friends for being wrong. They were the ones who had not spoken rightly of God. And though God may have appeared to be harsh during Job's afflictions, the Lord delivered him and restored him and granted him even greater prosperity than he had before his testing began. I mean, Job endured in the midst of adversity and God both vindicated and blessed him at the proper time. And these poor suffering believers that James was writing to needed to know that after all the suffering they had endured, they shouldn't give up, but rather be encouraged that God would deliver them and God would reward them. That reward may not be in this life. It may be in the life to come. But he would reward them nonetheless for their faithfulness, their patience, and their steadfast endurance and suffering. And the reason for this hope is clear. God isn't vicious. I mean, he doesn't love watching his people suffer. Rather, James says, look back at the end of verse 11. He says, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is what? Compassionate and merciful. And so James ends with a reminder of the very character of God. And he does so because very often those in the midst of severe trials and suffering like Job question whether God really cares about them. But James reminds them here that they have seen how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And the word translated is compassionate. It's probably better translated full of compassion. And it's used only here in the New Testament, and uh, they think that it's a word that was probably coined by James himself. And it speaks of the fact that God is not only compassionate, but that he is full of compassion, or very, very compassionate, or full of tender compassion. That's the God we love and serve. He is full of compassion. And to this compassion, James adds, merciful. I mean, God is full of compassion as He cares for us in our misery, and, and He is full of mercy as He forgives our sin. All of which says to those who are in the midst of trials, hardships, and sufferings that God is good. That God is always good. He is good, and He is kind, and He is compassionate, and He is merciful. He has a Father's heart. And even even when he allows the darkness of trials and suffering to come, he has a father's heart. And God cannot be unkind to his children. He is always working to bring about our ultimate good and his glory. 
And so James encourages his poor and suffering readers to, to trust in God and, and to wait patiently, to persevere, and, and to remember that in all their trials they can take comfort in the indisputable truth that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful and He's coming again. And when He comes again, He's going to deliver them and He's going to make all things right. And they would be with Him in His presence forever and ever and ever. We live in a world where affliction, pressure, persecution, and suffering of one kind or another abounds. I mean, it, it, it's all around us. I mean, there are problems and difficulties beyond our understanding. And there are times when we're tempted to despair, to, to throw in the towel, to forget about walking in obedience to Christ. But loved ones, when we find ourselves in that place, by the grace and mercy of God, we must encourage ourselves by remembering that the Lord Jesus is coming. He truly is. He's coming. He's coming again and we're going to be with Him forever. And that at the end of the day, we're going to be able to look back on even our darkest, most severe hour and gladly say that the Lord was full of compassion and mercy. And then we'll say in faith, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In any trial, any suffering or persecution that Christians face can be patiently endured by looking for the imminent coming of the Lord and by following the examples set by the Lord's faithful servants and remembering that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. And we must also remember that Jesus entered our world of suffering. And he patiently endured the greatest possible affliction so that we might be delivered. And because of that, he is able to help you and I in the midst of all of our sufferings if we will but turn to him, cast all of our care upon him because he cares for us. You see, the focal point of our lives as God's children must be on the coming of Christ. And we must live expecting and anticipating His return at any time. Because if we don't live with this hope, we will be crushed and discouraged by the trials that come upon us. But if we do, if, if we live with this great and glorious hope, this glorious certainty, then the trials and the difficulties become opportunities for us to demonstrate patience and endurance as faithful servants of Jesus Christ, giving testimony to the world around us that God is full of compassion and mercy and that the gospel truly is glorious. Amen? Well, may it be so in all of our lives. Let's stand and pray. I
behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.